following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. We're glad you're with us. Over the course of the summer, we have been doing a series. We've called it Favorite Text, and what we've tried to do is give different preachers the opportunity to preach on their favorite text. Uh, for guys that are doing it once in the summer, that's pretty easy. They can pick their favorite one and go. Uh, for a guy like myself, who's the normal preacher here, I've got to pick multiple favorite texts, which really isn't hard for me to do because I, there's several texts in the Bible I love to preach on. And some of the things that we've learned in the summer have been fantastic. We've, we've learned about trials and biblical wisdom. We have studied the fact that there is nobody like Jesus. We have been challenged to consider if the eternal life of God is alive in us right now. Dan Reeves did a great job preaching that to us last week. And if you didn't hear that sermon, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, it, was, it was a good one. Um, it, it has been really impactful. I know that every week when I get done with hearing somebody preach from our pulpit, I, I am left with being challenged. I'm left with my faith being pointed to Christ. I've left with just thinking more about how I need to follow Jesus. And we're going to do the same thing this week. We're going to look at another text in Scripture about being a follower of Christ. This text we're going to look at in 2 Corinthians 5 has really been a benchmark for me in my life. Probably like you, um, I have a lot of different roles in this world that I function in. I am, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm a pastor. I'm a coach. To some people, I'm a pastor coach. Some are coach pastors. Some think of me as a coach. Some think of me as a pastor. Some don't know I don't do either of those things. They just think of me as a friend. I have a lot of roles in my life, and this text has served me to remind me what, why all those things are important and really where all those roles fit in the grand design of God. So this morning, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. And if you're new with us, you should have got an, an outline when you walked in the door, a bulletin, and on the back side of that is an outline, and there's a big idea. And here's the big idea of the morning that we want to really capture in this text we're going to be in this morning. Because Jesus is our king, we are called and empowered by God to represent him in this world. Because Jesus is our king, we are called and empowered by God to represent him in this world. So let's stand together. We're going to read 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. Again, if you're new with us, we stand for the reading of God's word because we believe it is God-breathed, that it is inspired, it's authoritative, and we want to honor God's word as we read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world today that needs to see Christians being Christians. And I pray this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts to help us see who we represent, and how we can represent you better. But Father, most important, would you reveal to us the power of Christ at work within us to help us to do the very thing that you have called us to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, if you get around me for very long, you're going to recognize I'm a, I'm a big-time sports fan. Um, I, I do a lot of things with sports, and one of my favorite sports movies is the movie Miracle. Anybody seen that movie, the movie Miracle? It's about the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team that won the gold medal. Some of you might remember, if you are old enough to remember, Al Michaels' great call when the U.S. Olympic team beat the United, the, the USSR's Russian hockey team. They're really a professional team. And at the end of that game, he declared, do you believe in miracles? And everybody in the U.S. was freaking out and losing their minds because we'd beat the Russians. Right right in the middle of the Cold War, it felt really good. Sorry for those of you that are Russian. So <laughs> in that movie, Miracle, Team USA is, is preparing for the Olympics. And they're in the nation of Norway, and they were having a pre-Olympic hockey game, and they play absolutely horribly. After the game... Coach Herb Brooks is walking up and down the ice like a roaring lion. I mean, he's, you know, he brings his guys back on the ice. The Zamboni is shaving the ice. The lights are dimming in the stadium. People have left the building and he has them all line up on the end line. And he begins to have them do the, the equivalent of hockey sprints. They go down to the end of the ice and back with their sticks in their hand, and they skate back and forth. At each pass, he is screaming at them, who do you play for? So they get to the end line, one by one, players just randomly say their name and the university that they play for. And he screams again, and they run, go down to the end of the ice and back. In the middle of this post-game lesson, as they're continuing to name off their name and their university, Coach Brooks screams out, at some point, you better learn that the name on the front of your jersey is more important than the name on the back of your jersey. And then he screams again. And they go down to the end of the ice and back. And the scene is exhausting. If you've ever seen it, it is it is t- it just you, your whole body is cringing as player after player literally falling out. Some guys beginning to throw up, and it's it's an exhausting scene. 
And finally they get to the end of one of the lines and one of the players through his, you know, exhaustion screams out, my name is Mike Aruzioni. He's standing on a stick kind of hesitating and Coach Brooks screams out, and who do you play for? And he says, I play for the United States of America. And in that moment, Coach Brooks doesn't say a word, walks off the ice, and the lesson is over. See, Coach Brooks knew something that is deeply intertwined in team sports. When players realize that they represent something beyond themselves, they play with greater passion, greater intensity, and greater teamwork. What players represent would affect the way they played the game. I think all of us can relate to this in one way or another. Maybe you grew up in a family that told you, do not misrepresent the family name. Represent the family name well. My, my children know as they go hang out with their friends, they might go on a variety of things together with friends. I leave them with one little phrase. They would quote this to you as soon as they leave the house. And here's the phrase, do not be stupid. My kids know that means do not misrepresent what we're about as a family. Maybe you played under a coach who told you that your actions on the field would represent him or your school. In 22 years of coaching a high school baseball program, I've told my players that the history of our program and players that have gone before them represent should be represented by how they compete on the field. Or maybe you've worked for a boss who told you that your work ethic is to reflect or represent the company values. Well, according to Scripture, as God's children, we are to represent Christ. We are ambassadors of Christ. But here's the question. What does that mean? What does it mean to represent Jesus And there's no better place to see this than in the passage of Scripture that we have just read. See, so many people talk about that we as Christians are to be incarnational. Well, there's really only one being in the entire universe that can be incarnational, and his name is Jesus. It's not us. Some would say, well, we're to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Well, the problem with that is 1 Corinthians 12 says that some are feet and some are hands, and not everybody does the same thing. So what do we see in the Bible, and specifically in 2 Corinthians 5, that show us how we are to represent Jesus? This morning we're going to look at two points from this text, and you're going to see them in your outline, and it's the power of the gospel, and we're going to see the qualities that Paul talks about of of how we represent Christ. Because Jesus is our King, we are called and empowered by God to represent Him in this world. So look we'll be at point number 1, which is the power of the gospel. Notice the statements in this passage about the gospel of the good news. You can't miss this. Verse 14, one died for all. Verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. From this, we can see what the gospel is or what the good news of Jesus is. 
Christ died for our sins so that God would no longer count our sins against us anymore. That even though Jesus was perfect, he took on our sins as if they were his own. And he bore the just penalty for our sins and he became sin for us. And he did it so that we would have a right relationship with God. He did it so that God might count Jesus' perfection toward us and for us. And it's this truth that Paul has shown us in 2 Corinthians 5, that Christ lived perfectly in our place, died in our place, satisfied God's wrath in our place, and rose again from the dead, that shows us Christ is the only way to have our sins forgiven. He's the only way that we can have a right relationship with God restored. He's the only way that we can have access to God. That is the gospel. That's the good news. And the Bible tells us that when we believe in this gospel, that's what makes us children of God and gives us a right relationship with God. As Kevin DeYoung has rightfully said, there are indeed many ways to God, but there's only one that leads to a pleasant encounter with him. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 reveals to us that way. It's found in Christ. Now Paul is not satisfied to just simply tell us this is how we're reconciled to God. Paul is going to talk about how we're transformed by the power of this gospel. Look what, it, what he does and how he lays this out. Verse 15 He says, he, speaking of Christ, died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 17, if any man is in Christ, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. This could not be more clear. The power of the gospel changes us from living for ourselves to living for Christ. Telling us our biggest enemy in this world is not Satan. Our biggest enemy in this world is us. Our biggest sins are not just adultery and idolatry and murder and immorality, but our biggest sins really are being self-absorbed, self-focused, and sinfully self-indulgent. The biggest rival of the kingdom of God in our hearts is our very own kingdom of self. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 something simply amazing. There is such power in the gospel that we don't have to keep living in our sinful selves. We can live in a brand new way. The old sinful self is passed away, and life in the power of Christ has now come. What Paul is showing us in 2 Corinthians 5 is that a kingdom transfer has taken place. Before we trust in Christ, we represent the kingdom of self. Me, myself, and I. But now in Christ, after we've trusted in Jesus, we represent the kingdom of God. Notice how Paul says this in verse 20. Now we are ambassadors of Christ. No longer ambassadors for ourselves. We represent Christ. This kingdom transfer is so complete that our king, King Jesus, 
appoints us, empowers us, and deploys us to go represent him in this world. Simply remarkable news. I mean, just for a moment, before we go to the next point, just think about how powerful this is, how amazing this news is. We could not obey God's perfect law, but Christ did by his righteous life. God counted our sins against Christ as if Jesus had done every one of them, even though he hadn't done any of them. And if we simply trust, believe, hope in, have confidence in Jesus, God no longer looks at us as sinners, as enemies of his, nor does he stiff arm us at the door, but rather he welcomes us into his family. He restores our relationship with him, and it's so complete in this restoration that he calls us to represent him in this world as his children. No longer enemies, now ambassadors. This is amazing grace at work. God saved us from ourselves so that we can serve the risen Christ. We in Christ are a new creation, no longer living for our sinful selves, but for him who died and was raised. In other words, there's enough power in the gospel to save you from you. That's the power of the gospel. The question is, do you believe that gospel? Do you trust in that gospel? Is the good news of Jesus Christ indeed good news to you? There's many that would have a mental assent. Yes, Jesus died for sinners. Yes, he came to earth. Yes, he rose again from the dead. But very few say, attribute that to themselves. Jesus came for me. He died for sinners like me. He lived for somebody like me. He rose again for me. See, do you believe in this gospel? It's only through this gospel that you can be forgiven of your sin. It's only through this gospel that you can have a right relationship with God. And it's only through this gospel that you can be transformed to represent him in this world. If you don't believe in this gospel, we we would invite you to trust in Christ. We would invite you not to leave the building today without talking to somebody about your faith in Christ. We'd love to chat with you about that. If you have believed in Christ, then God is calling you to something, and that's what our next point is about. Let's look at the attributes now of representing Jesus. See, what does it mean to represent Christ? I have a lot of people in my life that I know of that claim Christ, but are not transformed to represent Christ. They say things about Jesus that are really good Sunday school answers. They put on the veneer of Christianity, and they even speak things they heard through memory verses they might have heard long ago, but their hearts are not transformed to represent Christ. So what does it look like to be transformed, to to represent Jesus in this world? And you're going to see this in the text, and there's three things we're going to notice. It means that we're controlled by love. We consider other people differently. And we have a ministry and a message. In a sense, it's like a job description. So you might wrestle with, what what is God calling me to do in this world? Well, with these three things, you don't have to wrestle with it anymore. 
I love places in the Bible that actually tell us what the will of God is. First Thessalonians 5.18, what is the will of God for you? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. You don't have to question if that is the will of God for you. This is another one of those places where Paul is laying out very clearly for us, what does it look like to represent Jesus? You don't have to pray about doing these things. You can most certainly pray about doing them better. Three things we're going to notice about representing Jesus. The first one is we're controlled by love. Look at verse 14 with me. For the love of Christ controls us. As those who believe in Christ's gospel, Paul writes, the love of Christ is a controlling, motivating factor in everything that we do. On one hand, it, it means it's, it's, it's our love for Christ. Meaning, we are simply amazed of His grace toward us. We are amazed that He loves us at all. If you do not see yourself as the worst sinner sitting in the room, you're not looking close enough. If you're not amazed that God has been patient toward you at all, you don't understand the gospel clearly enough. If you find yourself being unloving toward others, have you ever stepped back to ask how loving God has been toward you? If you find yourself getting impatient at your children, it's a good exercise to step back and say, God, (laughs) how patient have you been with a knucklehead like me all these years? We are simply astounded at his kindness. We are enamored that this God would love us at all. His love for us is why we love him. So you're aware, right, that you, you simply cannot love Christ without him first loving you. He is the pursuer. You know what you're doing? You're running. He's pursuing after you. That's what he does. He is the one who comes for you. He has displayed his love for you by giving of his life for you. We first, we love him because he first loved us. Love for Christ is what motivates us in everything we do. What we do and what we say, how we handle our moral standards, how we deal with relationships, how we solve our marriage conflicts, how we raise our children, what we do with our money, what we do with our time is all motivated by this one thought. How do we love Christ? Love for Christ motivates what we do, but we're also controlled by that love. Meaning Jesus' love for us becomes our love for other people. See, I I don't know about you. I I know myself decently well. And I know this about myself. I'm not an overly loving individual. I'm not greatly compassionate. And in order for me to love as Christ loved, he has to transform me. I love how Paul put this in Ephesians 5, where he lays it out really clear when he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And you think, okay, how do I be an imitator of God? Well, look what he says next. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, if we are God's children, then love will be the fruit and the fragrance from our lives and from our lips. The highest and best quality of a Christian is love. Now, when we think of Christian love, we often think that it's just kind of ooey gooey, the sappy, you know, best friendy thing, and we're going to give each other always encouraging words. But the Bible tells us that love is much more than that. 
Love requires us to speak the truth to one another. Love requires me to share the gospel with my non-Christian friend because I care about their soul. Love requires me to take a stand for things that maybe others don't think are all that important because of my love for them and my love for Christ. But one thing you're going to notice about the law of love that Christ gives us is that we're never outside of it. It's something funny about the law of love. We're told to love our family members, you know, love your spouse, love your children. We get that. We're told to love our neighbors, which kind of for Jesus extends all over the place. We're told to, to, love, uh, to love those who persecute us. We're told to love our enemies. So there's not one person that would be outside any of those categories, which means the law of love for the Christian means everybody on earth, we are called to love with Christ-like Love Every relationship, because we represent Jesus, is to be controlled by the love of Christ and for the love of Christ. A representative of Jesus is controlled by love. Do you, do you see why you need the power of the gospel? We cannot love like Christ's love without Christ empowering us to love like he loved The second attribute you're going to notice of representing Jesus is that we consider people differently. Notice how Paul wrote this in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. From Paul's vantage point, there was a time in his life when he regarded Jesus along the lines of human labels. He saw Jesus as poor. He came from a small town. I mean, can anything good come from Nazareth? He didn't look, he, Jesus didn't look or act like a king. He died on a cross. It was a sign of dishonor. And he was followed by a small band of fishermen who were actually outcasts at the time. All human labels. But when the gospel broke into Paul's heart, notice the transformation he talks about in verse 16. He stopped regarding Christ according to these human labels. And therefore, he stopped regarding other people regarding human labels. See, friends, the Christian love that represents Jesus stops looking at people from merely external and earthly labels. The color of skin, socioeconomic status, educational levels and degrees, body type, where you are from certain parts of this world... Instead, as Christians, the gospel transforms us to begin to see souls, every soul made in the image of God in need of our great Savior. In a sermon on this text in 2011, John MacArthur gave an example of going to the White House during the years of President Bush in the early 2000s. Here's what he told a White House staffer during that visit. You know, you guys got a problem here. And it's not the kind of problem you think it is. You guys are bent on making sure that you attack the Democrats, that you attack their, that you, that you attack your adversaries, that you have turned the mission field into your enemy. You can't do that. You might not like their politics, but you can't look at them after the flesh. That's a mission field. Could there be any, any greater and more challenging quality that we must put on in this era of division and cancel culture 
than this to represent Jesus. It feels like everybody's got a label. Left, right, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, libertarian. And if that's not enough for you, you've got alt-left, alt-right, progressive, socialist, communist, fascist, authoritarian. And that's just in politics. You've got redneck, snowflake, elitist. And those are just the ones that we can mention in mixed company. You get the point. In Christ... We no longer see people or judge people with human labels. We used to do that. That's one of the old things that has passed away. And one of the old things of the gospel is actually changing us. We now regard people differently. We now see them differently. We see them as image bearers in need of the gospel. We see souls, not enemies. We see eternal destinies not earthly politics. We see human beings, not merely the color of the skin. And again, do you see why you need the power of the gospel? Only Christ can take off these human labels and help you see people made in the image of God in need of a great Savior. The sinful self-kingdom divides over human labels. It always has, and it always will. Friend, just do an exercise this morning or this afternoon. Go home, open up your Apple news feed or whatever news feed you look to, and just read article after article that is dividing us over and over and over and over again. You know why? That's how the self-kingdom operates. It's always about moving people away from one another. Christ's kingdom is always about moving people toward God and toward one another. The gospel kingdom helps us consider people differently for the sake of their eternal soul. Christ did not regard us with human labels. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't come and say, well, because that one's from South County of Douglas County, they can't be saved. Or that one grew up in Dallas, Texas, can't be saved. Or that one's got brown hair. Or that one really did some bad things. They can't be saved. Aren't you glad that Christ did not give you, did not regard you with human labels? That rather he looked upon you as a person in need of his great love. And here's the beauty of this. He actually empowers us to do the same as his representatives. That we can consider other people differently than we used to. The last quality of representing Jesus is that we have a ministry and a message. And Paul lays this out very clearly in verses 18 through 20 when he wrote these words. All this is from Christ. Who through Christ reconciled from God, all through Christ, he reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, as ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Notice in that text, as it's on the screen, how often God is mentioned. God, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the omniscient, omnipotent God, the all-sovereign ruler of the universe gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God entrusted to us, entrusted to us 
the message of reconciliation. Paul says this, this is from God. Your, your king has given you a ministry of reconciliation, and he's entrusted you with a message of reconciliation. Now, reconciliation implies something, doesn't it? It implies division. Reconciliation implies that there's separation, that there's disunity, that there's lack of agreement, that there's enmity between God and man and between man and man. So what we can do as Christians is we can go, you know, we're walking into a world that is fully divided and stop being shocked when we see division. (laughs) Division is what the kingdom of self does. It's how it operates. And we were sent by God and called by God as humans in this world, as Christians in this world. We've been given by this God the only ministry of reconciling people to God and people to people. We've been entrusted by God with the only message that can reconcile people to God and people to people. This is simply astounding news when you think of your job description. That you have a ministry and a message to bring people to be right with God and help them be right with one another. If you want to know why there's no lasting unity in the world, it's because the world is preaching a false gospel. That gospel of whatever cannot save people and reconcile them to God, therefore they cannot be reconciled to one another. Christians have been entrusted with this. We have been given this by the God of the universe. And God, the God of the universe is making his appeal through us. He's speaking through us to those who are at war with God and at war with one another, who are divided against one another. God has entrusted this to us. What a remarkable thing. Ministry implies that there's action. There's service. That we're working with people. It's like Martin Luther would say, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Your neighbor who kicks those trash cans down the road and irritates the heck out of you, your neighbor needs to know your forgiveness. Your neighbor needs to know that you care. They need to know that you'll be there in a moment's notice, even though they've never been that way for you. They need to see ministry in action. They need to see the ministry of reconciliation. Message implies talking or sharing or declaring. And when you put those two things together, ministry and message combined, you have lives and lips. You have demonstration and you have declaration. You have works and you have words. Friends, the God of the universe, in making you his child, has given you and entrusted to you a ministry and a message. And all of it, All of it, every last drop of it, from being a parent or being a single person or being a husband or a wife or being an employer or being a neighbor or being a a student or being an athlete or being a coach, all of it is about people being made right with God through Jesus and having the power to be reconciled to one another. 
That's what it's all about. No matter what role you function in, that's what it is about. It's not about your 401k plan or the educational plan you got for your children. It is all about people being made right with God through Jesus and having the power to be reconciled to one another. It's not about them becoming good or nice or kind or voting the way you want them to vote or simply living their best lives now. No, it's all about people being made right with God through Jesus and having the power to be reconciled to one another. It's what it's all about. It's what 2 Corinthians 5 tells us about. When you put all your roles and you say, what is God calling me to do? It is to do this and be an ambassador of Christ with a ministry and a message that God, listen, that God gave to you. That God gave to you. We simply cannot ignore this. We cannot ignore this. This means that love for our fellow man should lead us to see them as made in the image of God and needing the ministry and the message of reconciliation that God put you in their life to point them toward, which you demonstrate and declare to them as an ambassador of Christ. See, if this is not happening, then you've got to ask how well you're representing Jesus. I mean, let's let this burrow deep into our souls. Let's, let's get this gospel truth deep. The gospel is the power of God to change us from loving ourselves and representing ourselves to loving and representing Christ. And that same power is what gives us the love for Christ and Christ's love for others. It helps us see people made in God's image and empowers us to fulfill the ministry of reconciliation and proclaim the message of reconciliation. And our world everywhere screaming at you to do it differently than what Christ has told you to do it. Everywhere you turn, division is there. People labeling everything and everyone, and if you don't like the current labels, just wait, they'll change in about 30 seconds. If you don't agree with what people stand for or their position on certain topics, you vilify them, you yell at them, and you curse them. And if make it even easier, just go on an anonymous rant about them on social media so you can hide courageously behind a computer screen. Our world is sowing the wind of division, and it's shocked when it reaps the whirlwind of violence. But as children of God, we're called to do it way different. Because they do it that way doesn't mean we do it that way. We don't fight flesh with flesh. We don't fight sin with sin. We fight sin and flesh with grace. We fight it with truth. We fight it with love. We fight flesh and sin with the gospel, the word and promises of God, and believing with all of our hearts that God's ways are indeed the best ways. And the craziness of this is, it's into this world that in this time of history, that this place, this community, this nation, that God has put us. See, I know some of you, and you really wish that God would have dropped you in the medieval days, because then you could do the jousting thing. For any of your enemies, you could ride on the horse, you could just joust them, knock them over, and the thing settled. Some of you want to be in the 1700s when you actually did the duels, you know? Let's pull out those little pocket guns and just shoot each other and figure out who it is or just stab each other with a sword, that'd be really cool. Or you wanted to be in the Wild West when they settled things in the middle of the city square with a gunfight. That's not where God put you. By his providence, by his grace, he put you in that neighborhood 
next to that neighbor. He puts you in that school teaching those kids. He puts you as a student under that teacher sitting next to that other student. He puts you in that job working with those people. And he puts you there for a reason to represent him and represent him well. So in Colossians 3, when he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, he means it. Because a gentle answer really does turn away wrath. When he said in Timothy, he told us not to be quarrelsome, but to be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting our opponents with gentleness so that he might grant them the gift of repentance. He actually means it because it means the weapons of his warfare are not the same weapons that are being used in the world. When he told us in 1 Peter 3 that we're to always be prepared to make a defense about the hope that we have in Christ and do it with gentleness and respect. We must see that his way of handling people is way different than the way our world wants to handle people. Friends, we are called to represent Christ now, controlled by love now, considering people differently now, with a ministry and message of reconciliation to God now. Do you see how much you need the power of the gospel? Because the world out there was going to do it completely different. So as you go today, listen, you're going to go to lunch, you're going to go home, you're going to go to work tomorrow, you're going to go to school, you're going to, going to go to neighborhoods, you're going to go to apartments. Take this with you because Jesus is your king. You are called and empowered by God to represent him in this world. And you know why that's important? Because right now, our world needs a heavy dose of Christians being Christians. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to our hearts this morning. Would you... Would you do what you do with your people? Lord, just go to work in them. You're the great shepherd. You're the great pastor. Jesus, you're the chief shepherd. And you know the hearts of every person who's listening. Father, would you forgive us where we have self-righteously judged and criticized others? We've not seen them through the lens of being made in the image of God and in need of a Savior. Would you forgive us where we have not loved others with the love of Christ toward us? Forgive us where we have lived in a way that has not been motivated by your love. And Father, knowing this church like I know this church and the joy that these people have in their Savior and in their relationships together, I thank you that you have helped us to love each other really well. And I pray that you would empower us to love our neighbors really well. That you would help us to demonstrate and declare the good news of the gospel with courage and with love to those who need it. For this, we we need the power that only you can provide. We, We can't do it in our own strength or our own power. 
where we are cowards, Lord, would you open our mouths and help us speak? Where, where we have been hypocritical, would you change us so that we would, we would live differently before a non-believing world? Where we've been unforgiving because people have spoken ill against us, would you, would you help us to forgive others as you have so freely forgiven us? And we thank you, Lord, because these are the very things that you want to do in us. Transform us by the power of the gospel at work within us. For the glory of your great name, for the good of your people, and for the advancement of your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.